Well, we're continuing our series, Lord, Teach Us to Pray, this morning. And this is a series that's born out of a, a need for us to learn to grow or a want for us to learn to grow in our prayer lives. And so there was only one time, actually, in the Gospels where the disciples went to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, can you teach us this? And he did. And it was the title of this series. They came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. See, they, they saw something about the way Jesus prayed, and they wanted that for their lives. And I hope that, that we want that as well. Well, we've worked through just about half of the prayer so far. So just as a bit of a quick recap, we started the series looking at the address of the prayer, Our Father in Heaven. And we said that to call God our Father is a privilege that's unique to Christianity. And, and it's one that's only available to us because of the work Jesus did on the cross. It's because of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection that defeated sin that we can repent and, and turn to Jesus and claim for ourselves his righteousness. And thus, his sonship is extended to you and me, and we can become children of God. Then we looked at the first petition, the first ask of the prayer, hallowed be your name. And that week we focused on the holiness of God, just how other he is to us. And we said that to hallow something is to revere it, to make it the most important thing in your life, even to worship it. And then wrestled with the question, what am I hallowing in life? You see, functionally, we're all worshiping something. The only question is, what? What is it that's most important in our lives? And I hope that we continue to be willing to ask that question of ourselves and of one another and to evaluate what we're giving our hearts to and then repent where needed and turn to God and only hallow his name. See, the thing is, it's only the creator that can handle the pressure and the weight of being hallowed. Anything that's created will crumble under the weight of these uh, eternal expectations. And then last week we looked at the prayer, Your kingdom come as, or on earth as it is in heaven. And we talked about what the kingdom is, and we said that it's the rule and reign of God, or we, we said that it's His redemptive presence coming to earth as it is in heaven. And we said that to pray, Your kingdom come, inherently means that we want to set aside our kingdoms. And we said that it's probably best to add and start with me after that prayer. Because it is easy for us to just say something that's maybe automatic of, oh yes, your kingdom come. But when we add that, and Lord, start with me, that really puts some more ownership to it, doesn't it? And so it's been a journey. Uh, this model prayer that Jesus taught is deep and filled with meaning. It's challenging, and even though it's familiar, it's worth asking, do I actually want this before we pray it? Well, this morning we continue with what might be the hardest prayer that Jesus asked us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's one of the hardest parts of the model prayer because if we're asking God for his will to be done, then we're asking that our will not be done. I see these two things cannot coexist. So us praying your will be done is to offer up our lives in complete submission to God's will. And so as one writer says, here more clearly than anywhere, the purpose of the prayer becomes plain, not to make God do my will, but to bring my will in line with him. 
And it's no coincidence that the whole first half of the prayer has been devoted to reminding ourselves that God is God and we are not. Think of what we've been praying. Our Father, you are holy, your kingdom come, and your will be done. None of that is first and foremost about me. It's all about him. This whole prayer so far is about having our relationship with God rightly ordered. Now this prayer is powerful and important and and one that we can't take lightly. And this prayer, your will be done, is one that flies in the face of everything our culture tells us to do. See, right now, easily the most important feature to most modern people in the West is choice. The, The freedom to decide and dictate how our lives should play themselves out. And we're really at the point where basically the only thing that's morally wrong in our culture is to infringe on someone else's choice. How how dare you tell me I can't do that? How dare you tell me I can't think that? How dare you tell me I can't act that way? See, our culture's highest priority might be captured in the phrase, you do you. How we've thrown off any sense of authority and instead trust ourselves to just kind of feel our way through life with our self becoming the highest authority. One modern writer describes the modern self this way. He says, the modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as divined by the ability to give social expression to the same, that is, acting on those inner feelings. The modern self also assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm this behavior. We've seen that a lot lately, haven't we? He says, such a self is defined by what is called expressive individualism. In short, the modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. And yet Jesus teaches us to pray, God, it's your will be done even if it's at the expense of my will. I appreciate how Martin Luther sort of unpacks this prayer by saying, Lord, grant us grace to bear willingly all sorts of sickness and poverty and disgrace and suffering and adversity and to recognize that this, uh, in this your divine will is crucifying our will. So what is it that we're talking about? What is God's will? Well, much like the already not yet of the kingdom that we looked at last week, remember what that is? We said that the kingdom has come because Jesus has come and he has inaugurated the kingdom of God on heaven. And yet we still look forward to when he comes back again and and brings the kingdom into fullness on earth. So there's this already not yet sort of uh, two sides of the kingdom. Well, there's also kind of two aspects of God's will in scripture. We'll define them this way. We'll say God's will of decree and God's will of desire. Now, when we're talking about God's will of decree, what we're talking about is God's sovereignty over all things. It's what we mean when we say that he's in control. And this is the category of all the things that God has determined to happen in eternity past. Uh, There's a sense in which everything that happens is according to the will of God, and yet nothing happens except as it conforms to the will of God. Uh, A couple of scriptures that hopefully help us understand this. In in Matthew 10, 29, Jesus says, And aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. And even the hairs on your head have been counted. This is God's will of decree. 
little bit later in the New Testament, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan or the will of the one who works out everything in agreement for the purpose of his will. When we're talking about uh, God's will of decree, this is a will that cannot be thwarted. The flip side, the other side that uh, or aspect that's talked about in Scripture is God's will of desire. And when we're talking about God's will of desire, we're talking about what He commands of us and what He wants of us as we follow Him. Again, a couple of scriptures that hopefully help us understand this a little bit. Um, a little bit later in this Sermon on the Mount, with this section that this prayer is in, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Again, later in the New Testament, in 1 John, John writes, uh, Do not love the things of this world uh, or the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. So saying God's will of desire is kind of like shorthand for um, obeying God's commands and walking in his way. Now, doing God's will, it also means we say no to the desires of the flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of our possessions. So there is a sense, when we're talking about God's will of desire, that we can choose to submit to God's will or not. See, every day, maybe every hour, every moment, we, we choose whether to indulge our fleshly or earthly desires or to follow God's rule and reign and submit to his commands and instructions for living. And so this is the type of will we're praying for in the Lord's Prayer. So we've talked about uh, these two aspects of God's will, God's will of decree, God's will of desire. And so we have these two categories, but again, what is it? Well, as usual, as what is best practice, we want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And again, what I mean by that is, if there's something in the Bible that we're not sure we understand, let's look at the rest of the Bible to see if that helps us understand. And so we want to look at the text to understand what God's will is. And as I was studying this week, I found kind of this summary by uh, Thomas Aquinas to be really helpful. He says this, first, uh, it's God's will, we're asking the question, what is God's will? It's God's will that we may have eternal life. It's God's will that we would get back to that original Garden of Eden state where we lived with him forever. Uh, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 6. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Well, the second aspect of this is that uh, we would keep his commandments. And we've kind of touched on that, talking about God's will of desire. So when we're saying, thy will be done, we are praying that we would be obedient to what God has called us to. The thing is, it's our lack of doing so that's what separates us from him. Us not obeying is is the definition of sin. And so if, if God is holy, which he is, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, then part of the implication of that sin being in our lives is that we can't survive in his presence. And so God's will for our lives, his desire for us, is that we would, as Peter writes in 1 Peter, be holy as I am holy. 
Elsewhere in John chapter 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. And a little bit later in that same chapter, he says, The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will reveal myself to him or her. We can go back to the Old Testament and kind of see this playing out as well. In in Deuteronomy 30, starting at verse 16, uh, Moses calls out to the people and and kind of commands and commissions and and, and hopes for the people this, this way. He says, For I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands and statutes and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. A little bit later in the same chapter, he says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him and remain faithful to him for he is your life and he will prolong your days as you live in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Well, the third thing is ultimately kind of a a summation of the first two. But God's will is that we would be restored to the state and dignity in which mankind was first created. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, For this is God's will, your sanctification, that, that you would be made holy. Now, we were created by God, not as slaves or servants of God, but to be friends of God. We were created to share in the eternal community that the Trinity shares amongst itself. We were made to to walk with God in the cool evening breeze in the garden. We were made to live in his presence and to be his people and for him to be our God. Aquinas says the soul and spirit experience no resistance from sensuality in the flesh as long as the souls were subject to God. And the flesh was, flesh was in such subjection to the spirit, no corruption of death or weakness or any other passions were felt. Now you'll notice we've been talking about God's will, and I haven't yet said that God's will is him telling you or me, go here, do this thing. And when we typically speak of God's will, that's kind of what we want, right? Wouldn't it be great to wake up every morning and look out in the sunrise and see God's plan for our lives written in the clouds? Or would it be fantastic to get up in the morning, head down to the kitchen and take your alphabets out of the cupboard and pour them in a bowl, add the milk, and all the letters just kind of reshape themselves so that they, they, they tell you exactly what God wants you to do that day? That'd be so helpful, right? Or to just always have this audible voice like a podcast or, or a written record of God's direction to us. Now, I do believe, don't hear me wrong, I do believe that God still does give signs. God still can speak audibly. But my experience is that this isn't the norm. There have been a few times in my life where I felt that God did speak so clearly through someone else's encouraging or directing or challenging And there have been times where my soul just knew that there was something I had to do. And I expect that will happen again. Yet, that's not always the norm. And honestly, I think that's a good thing. See, if God had spelled out for me or for you everything that I was supposed to do over the next year or two or five 
I know myself. And I know that if, if God gave me that five-year plan, it wouldn't take me very long before I just feel like I can do this. I'm, I'm handling this all by myself. And, and I know God told me to do this, but I'm taking care of it. But to not have that long-term plan all laid out, guess what that does? That keeps bringing me back to him. It means that again and again, daily, even hourly, what I need to be doing is asking God, okay, what's next? And then having him lead me in that day-by-day, moment-by-moment sort of way. When Naomi and I were first married, we had the opportunity to go and take a discipleship course in South Africa. We were younger then, young in our marriage. We both just finished our degrees and were starting to look at our careers and, and, and where God would be leading us. And, and I think I can say that we really wanted kind of that series of five-year plans that, that God would hopefully give us that to map out our lives. But during that time, God, I believe in his kindness, prepared us to, well, to try and learn, because I'm still trying to learn this, that he wasn't going to give us that. He wasn't going to give us the five-year plan. Instead, at one point in the class, while we were praying through some homework, we were both reminded of Psalm 119, 105. Do you remember what that one says? There it says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Now just think about that text a little bit. Now maybe, maybe that's just something for us, but I think it's more common than we all think. Uh, picture the image of that song. If you're out walking in the dark, uh, carrying a lamp or a lantern or, or, or out in the dark with a headlamp or something, how far can you see? Well, a little ways, right? Depending on the light that's being cast, but you can see your feet. And then depending on the power of the lamp, you see a bit of the path and, and more or less of the path. And you've got this picture of, of what's around you. But if you want to see beyond that, what do you have to do? You have to move. You have to take a step. And when you do, when you take that step, what happens? A little bit more of your path is illuminated. The point is, God wants us to trust him. To have faith that if we work at being close to him and and studying his word and surrounding ourselves with godly counsel, we'll just keep walking down the path that he set before us. Uh, Each step on that path, we're praying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. And as Jesus said a little bit later in chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, as we walk down the path, just seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and, and the other things will be provided. Kevin DeYoung, in his uh, great little book on the Lord's Prayer, I mentioned it last week, I'm using it again this week, he says this, God does direct and guide all of our steps, and he may even surprise us with supernatural leading that won't make sense until after the fact. But nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to seek out a mysterious will of direction whereby God tells us what to do at every fork in the road. What's important to God, he says, is that we rest in his will of decree. We obey his will of desire, and we trust that he is directing our lives through wisdom and good counsel, even when he doesn't show us the exact next step to take. Now in all of this, the really good news is that we have an example to follow, and that's Jesus. 
In all that Jesus did when he walked the earth, he was acting on this prayer. Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He shows us perfect submission to God the Father. Uh, John chapter 4 records him kind of declaring this near the start of his public ministry. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he carried that right through until the conclusion of his ministry. We can look at near the end of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that critical redemptive moment, the the hinge point that the whole Bible uh, pivots on, the whole Old Testament points towards, and everything after that moment is a, is a, a display of what comes because of that moment. And in that garden moment, we see Jesus praying, and he knows that the cross is right around the corner. And he's wrestling with all that it will mean to bear the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of the world, knowing that it's going to involve a real and authentic separation from the Father. Look how he prays. Matthew 26, 39, it says, He fell face down and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. A couple of verses later, in verse 42, we read, uh, and again a second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, a couple of verses later, verse 44, it says, He went went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. I appreciate how uh, theologian J.I. Packer comments on this. He says, The incarnate Lord was in the grip of mind-blowing horror, evoked not just by the expectation of physical pain and outward disgrace. See, strong men can bear these things in a good cause without too much ado. But by the prospect of being made sin and being forsaken by his father on the cross. Never man feared death like this man, said Luther truly, and this was why. His whole being shrank from it, and yet his prayer remained, not as I will, but as you will. What it cost him to pray, thus we shall never know. What it may cost us to accept God's will, we cannot say either, which is perhaps just as well. Now, when we look at Jesus' prayer here and his example for us here, we can learn an incredibly important spiritual lesson. See, the will of God is not always easy, and it's not always safe. But like Paul teaches in Romans 12 too, the will of God is always good and pleasing and perfect. Listen, to pray your will be done and start with me, is a dangerous prayer. It means putting the sovereign will of God first in your life and putting to death your own sovereign will. It means putting to death the idea that our culture puts forward of of you do you and that your feelings define your destiny. It means willingly submitting your life to be shaped and molded by someone else. I love how Paul Tripp summarizes us praying this prayer. He says this, You'll experience the messiness, discomfort, and difficulty of God's refining grace. It means surrendering the center of your universe to the one who alone deserves to be there. It means loving God above all else and your neighbor as yourself. It means experience the freedom that can only be found when God breaks your bondage to you. 
It means finally living for the one glory that is truly glorious, the glory of God. You see, the prayer that Christ taught us to pray is the antidote to sin. And since sin starts with the heart, it's only when my heart desires God's will more than it desires my will that will live within the moral and gospel boundaries God has set for me. And it's only God's grace that can produce this kind of heart. Thy kingdom come. Words of surrender, words of protection, and words of grace that can only be prayed by those who've been delivered by the Redeemer from the kingdom that always leads to destruction and death, the kingdom of self.